Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today, I've got Bill Dragoo with me. Bill is an adventure motorcyclist hailing from Oklahoma. Um, a couple things that jumped out at me. <clears throat> First, J.J. Lewis, a friend of mine who is an, an adventure rider, uh, did a story about his trip with eight members of uh, a team that he put together to go do uh, a multi-day trip down in Copper Canyon, Mexico. And it was a, it was a story to remember, but I remember a couple of times he referenced this guy named Bill Dragu. And it was a, it was just a, it was a name that just kind of stuck. And this is already a year and a half removed, but um, Bill, your name popped up in my mind and I did a quick web search and I thought, son of a gun, this guy is immersed in the adventure, the adventure riding world. So uh, I did my homework and uh, reached out to Bill, and Bill was gracious enough to uh, to lend us some time, but moreover, he was willing to share an adventure story with us. So today, our guest is adventure journalist, three-time uh, Rawhide Podium uh, participant, and BMW Motorrad certified international adventure writer, instructor, Bill Dragoo. Bill, welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be here. That's uh, quite an introduction. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll hold um, JJ accountable for that. <laughs> I think that the problem with JJ is that that world must be very small if my name is the one that keeps popping up. But it did. It but, did. No, JJ is amazing. He's quite a guy. And I have been fortunate enough to... Uh, joined some uh, rides with him. In fact, uh, my son and I rode with him, gosh, it's been a couple of years ago now. And there's a story called A Good Adventure with a Father and Son. And it's it should be in the, I think, an upcoming, maybe the next issue of Roadrunner Magazine. Okay. So stay tuned for that and a little bit more about JJ and uh, some of the intricacies of the rides that he leads. Yeah, I sure will. Uh, name name a couple of the other publications that you've worked with. I read a couple of articles um, that I think our listeners would just find interesting, appealing. Uh, one was Road Roadrunner Magazine. The other is uh, Adventure Rider. Did I see an article from Adventure yes. Rider? Yes, okay. uh, Adventure Rider Magazine has changed forms. The early Adventure Rider Magazine was started by James Pratt, more or less parallel to the uh, Adventure Rider on um, uh, the, the website, the advrider.com. Gotcha. But there is a more current version of that that is now the same as, it's the same entity as uh, uh, ADV Rider. Okay. And then ADV Moto, Dual Sport News, I began writing for them. Uh, they, they and Ride Oklahoma Magazines were two of the first magazines that I wrote for back in uh, around 2007 or so. And that uh, ADV Moto was then owned by Tobin Lampson and Carl Parker uh, bought that magazine out from him and it has really launched it, has really taken it to great heights. So I am blessed to be able to write for uh, ADV Moto Magazine still. 
um, a couple of recent articles, uh, both on their online presence and on their in their uh, paper publication on the uh, Triumph uh, Tiger, which uh, the new one uh, I was in Portugal uh, for them, and then also I write for Overland Journal, uh, for Outdoor by Four magazine, for um, Ride Texas. Uh, gosh, when you start listing them, then you always fear missing the one that you did. Uh, I understand. So Compass is a uh, online presence for Overland uh, Expo for Lodestone Events. Uh, uh, produces over the Overland Expos across the nation for now. And I've written for their Compass uh, online presence a few times. And then they have a paper publication also that goes out to, I'm going to guess, roughly 60,000 people who are attendees at the Overland Expos. Uh, also for, um, gosh, um, Revzilla, they're, um, I'm trying to think, uh, goodness, there I go, forgetting that. Yeah, well, now uh, I got you uh, digging, so that's all <laughs> I won't do that. No, but, that's okay. Uh, but yeah, and, and a few others, so it's 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 been really fun, uh, yeah. the writing element of what we do. Yeah, so before uh, before we get started with your adventure story, which everybody's looking forward to hearing, um, Bill, just this, for the sake of our listeners, explain to us uh, rudimentary, what is adventure motorcycling? And then uh, break into maybe your background a little bit and how you got involved in adventure moto. You know, the question you asked was asked to me by one Rudy Duran uh, a number of years ago. Rudy and I and his wife, Beth, and my wife, Susan, were sitting across the table from one another at brunch after church one morning. And Rudy asked me this question what is adventure riding? What does it mean to you? How is it different than riding a Harley Davidson or something? Sure. Uh, you know, these other, other communities of riders. Yeah. Well, Rudy Duran happens to be Tiger Woods' first golf coach. No way. Yes way. In fact, I ran into Beth yesterday. I hadn't seen her in four years. And she walked up to me at a little pub that's next door to my son's wood shop. And uh, so, so this, it's interesting that this communication, this, this conversation is taking place right now. But when Rudy asked me that, it made me think about the movie Urban Cowboy with John Travolta. Now, you're a little young for this, but you might have seen some reruns or something on it. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell, but that's that's okay. In that movie, you'll want to make a note of that, Urban Cowboy. But in that movie, uh, John Travolta's skinny back then. Of course, he's the the famous dancer and all that he he has always been. And he's leaning back against the bar at Gilly's. Uh, bar and grill in Houston, Texas. And Sissy walks up and she says, are you a real cowboy? And he has this big Travolta smile and he looks at her and he says, well, that depends on what you think a real cowboy is. So when you ask, and then of course the story, it took another 2,400 words or more to evolve, but that story is on my website under buildregu.com under publications. It's called, are you a real adventure writer? There you go. And it actually introduces Rudy in the story as well. But so that when someone asked me, what is adventure riding? What is an adventure rider? Then I have to say, or at least qualify it by saying, it's, it's what's in here. No one can tell you, you are a real adventure rider or you aren't with any authority because there is no uniform or universal authority on being an adventure rider. But you'll know it when you are one. You'll mm. know it when you feel that sense of adventure inside. That's such a good response, Bill. Um you know, I'm trying to write an article right now for my friend named Kevin DeVries. He's got uh, he's got this men's ministry. It's a pair of ministry entitled Grace Explorations. And he's starting all of these little mini satellite gatherings in brew houses where men come together. And it's it's Christ-centered. It's biblical stuff. 
but men are coming together and they're sharing their stories in a raw, authentic environment where um, maybe they haven't darkened the door of a church in a long time, but they know there's truth being spoken and it's cemented in gospel. Um, so Kevin's growing like wildfire and he's got this new publication idea. So he asked me to write a story and my story is going to be, it's, it's more or less tracking with what you just said. And I just wrestled with that very thought last week, which is what is adventure? How do you quantify that? It's very subjective. Um, adventure is to the eye of the beholder. I think there are some elements that are woven within an adventure that are absolutely required. They're paramount of those. I believe risk measured risk needs to be there. I think it has to test your skills. So it has to touch, touch something that pushes the envelope for you physically. I think it has to push the envelope for you mentally. And I think it has to push the envelope for you emotionally. I think those ingredients are consistent throughout any discipline. I think if you're on an Alpine, you know, if you're in an Alpine setting, you can apply that. If you're in whitewater, you can apply that. And if you're ripping up, you know, BDR track, that applies, it, it follows. So I, I agree with you. I think it's very subjective and, there, and there's beauty in that because it means it's for all of us. There are universal truths in, in, so, in many definitions. So it does get subjective whenever you get into adventure. But as you said, there are some elements that must be there to, to, to really make it adventure. You know? Yeah. So. And it's got to, in my mind, it's got to be outside. I, yeah. It yeah. just does. Okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? How'd you get, how'd you get involved in motorcycles, um, early family life, and get us caught up to the point where you're going to take off on a, an adventure story that we're all looking looking forward to following okay well uh you know i think i would preface that by saying uh you know do you, do you remember those early times in life when you you thought you were really something uh you you were first began to realize that you you had it going on and then eventually as life would begin to happen to you you realized that even though your mother said these things, you were wrong. And you see that you see the others in the world and you see their adventures, you see their accomplishments. And, you know, Louis L'Amour said this very well, uh, famous uh, Western writer. He said, if you want to know how big an impact you make in this world, he said, put your finger in a bucket of water and then pull that finger out. That hole that you leave there is how much of a difference you really make. Wow. And that's a humbling statement. And obviously there are people who make very, very big impacts on, on the world. But I, you know, I, I would preface this to say that if you, if you think you're all that, you're probably not. It's mm. the, it's the more humble people that, uh, that really are the ones who are making the difference. So we all struggle between trying to achieve accomplishments and then uh, letting those accomplishments just be, just exist for the good of others and not so much just for your own glory. But that said, I, I have always enjoyed adventure. I mean, I was raised uh, at a filling station and garage and hog farm and garden and whatever else my granddad had going on east of Norman, Oklahoma, about six miles east of, uh, of our town here. And we did a little bit of everything from running water well drills to having a junkyard uh, selling old used car parts to uh, we'd tear down some barracks at the South, South Base. We had a Navy base here in Norman uh, during the war, World War II. 
and uh, he would wreck those out. And, and, you know, I would straighten nails to, to sell nails or use nails to, uh, to build things with. So it was kind of a, a post-depression, uh, but depression-like upbringing that I think that we had where grandpa always carried a little wad of cash in his overalls front pocket. And he was always looking for something he could make a nickel on. And sometimes the nickels about all he made, or mm. he probably lost the entire wad of cash a few times. But that was, that was the initial part of my upbringing. And, you know, early exposure to motorcycles, uh, Norman's uh, one of, if not Norman's first police motor officer lived in a rent house that my grandfather had out there. So I remember riding on the back of that Harley Davidson with him when I was about four or five years old. And uh, that, that was a tremendous experience when he pulled that pedal out and stomped down on it and started it. And it was just a, just a, a glorious sound that came from that machine. And that probably uh, completely rearranged my DNA at that time and haven't changed it a whole lot since then. I've just always enjoyed the sound and the feel of being on that bike. So as time went on, uh, my mother did forbid me from riding. I saved up almost enough money to buy a motorcycle. And my grandfather made up the difference for me. And I got a little Honda 70, of which I, I should have brought the owner's manual out here. It's in the house and I could still present. You still have it? Manual. Oh, I do. I do. I still have the license I earned back then at 14 oh, years old. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of started acting on that and found out that I had, uh, um, you know, I was talking to my son and to one of our students recently about flying dreams. And, and I began to correlate this. But many people have had flying dreams where they do something and now they can fly. They're pulled back on the handlebars on their bicycle, like, e, you know, on ET, like, yep, like on ET, ET and uh, fly. Or for me, it was to stand there and to tense up and I could, I could simply levitate. And I still have those dreams. I had one night before last that I was levitating over a, an overland expo and looking down at everything that was going on in front of me. And it, it made me wonder if that, wiring in your brain provides or produces or facilitates some form of innate talent to ride well. Now, I'm not a great rider. I'm not a, a world-class rider or anything. I mean, I've done well in some, some competitions, but when you look at the size of your pod, you realize how well you've really done. You know, I, I'm a upper to medium-sized fish in a farm pond, mm. but I have been fortunate enough to be able to combine that with other things. So as I was growing up and I got my first motorcycle and I was also into scouting, then I made the decision uh, the first night of Boy Scouts, I wanted to be an Eagle Scout. And our uh, Scoutmaster asked, how many of you are, are going to be Eagle Scouts? Well, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a good thing. So I raised my hand and my buddy Vester Adams raised his hand. We became the only two Eagle Scouts to my knowledge during the existence of troop 285 is that right wow I, yeah now maybe later some did but i think the troop faded away but uh, i began to set goals and eagle scouts was one of them and as i got a little bit older i went to a spartan school of aeronautics i was not a great student in school but i i wanted to do a, to take a tech school of some kind so I had an opportunity of either going to uh, automotive mechanics or a machine shop or to uh, aircraft mechanics. And aircraft mechanics just sounded fascinating to me. So I tried to get into that. And I put that down as my first choice. Auto mechanics is my second choice and something else, maybe auto body or machine shop is third. 
And I walked in on the first day of school and the instructor gave us a kind of a dress down, uh, you know, here's who I am and here's who you are and here's how that all stacks up sure. discussion. And I was not pleased with it. I wasn't anti-authority, but I didn't like his demeanor. And at the first break, I went into uh, into the counselor's office and I said, you got to get me out of here. I, I can't do this. And they said, what is it you want? And I said, I want to be an aircraft mechanics. I don't want to be an auto mechanics. And they said, well, I'm sorry, auto mechanics is full. And as I got ready to leave, uh, to walk out with a great degree of de dejection, the uh, another young man walked into the room. He said, hey, you got to get me out of aircraft mechanics. Oh. <laughs> and they said, what do you want? Well, we want auto mechanics. And they looked at us and the, the counselors Swap. looked at each other and boom, we swapped right there. So that set me on the path to another goal in life. And that was to become an AMP or airframe and power plant mechanic. Okay. And so it just kept going like that. Scuba licensing, skydiving, uh, flying in various rate ratings with flying seaplanes uh, all of these things I became certified in because I wanted a credential for whatever it was that I was doing I wanted to be not just good at it but I wanted a document that said you have earned the right to call yourself this thing this this entity um, and so so that's how I rolled during those earlier years of life and most of those earlier years of life and when it came time for motorcycles, I mean, I'm in Oklahoma. As I said, this is a farm pond. And I would, I would read Dirt Bike Magazine. And I, I saw all the things that were happening in California. I bought the very first issue that Rick Siemens, the, a, a.k.a. Super Hunky, uh, wrote uh, or produced for that magazine. And I, I thought, man, this is just the deal. You know, I'd love to be out there, but California to me might have might as well have been Mars. Yeah. So I did my motocross and I did my trials riding, and I was okay locally. I mean, I was always almost always on the podium. What? And, what? Uh, real quick, what era was this? What decade? Oh, this was in the early seventies. Early seventies. Okay. So the so motorcycles the that I just, raced, yeah, okay, was flourishing was yep. flourishing we were coming off of the greaves and ajs and bsa 441 victors of which there is a fuel tank uh you can't quite see it from where you are maybe i can tilt this just enough that you can oh, see oh the there it is the red and white and one tank and yeah oh, well wow. it's the red and white one is the 441 shooting star but uh, that's crazy all all projects with great intentions but um yeah, so that was that transitional era to when people started to, to have better motors, a little better suspension. It was still pre-monoshock days. You were doing trials on dual shock rears? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Yamaha TY250 Cat uh, was a dual shock bike. And the idea yeah. was to have really high ground clearance. Uh, some of the motor characteristics were, were were still quite good back in those days. They certainly have gotten much better. Yeah. But uh, things have changed in, the, in that trials uh, arena considerably. But those were precursors to adventure riding, which I had no idea, no idea. So I went on, you know, did my various things with, with my career or careers in automotive business and uh, some building and things like that. And then in 2008, I was given an opportunity by Tobin Lanson, who uh, at that time owned uh, uh, ADV Moto Dual Sport News Magazine. And he said, Bill, why don't you come out here and, uh, and do this contest, this Rawhide Adventure Rider Challenge? And 
see how you do, but I'd like to have you write a story for us from the perspective of a contestant. So I did. It was a three-day contest, and, and I won. In three days, I had three errors. I had put my foot down zero times the first day, hit no cones, no off courses. Day two, I had one error, and day three, I had two errors, and that left me in the winning position for that. That put me on uh, the radar screen for BMW Motorrad whenever they, later that year, were first invited to the GS Trophy. And it was the, the first uh, um, one that okay. was to be held in Tunisia, in North okay. Africa. Yeah. And so I, I got within the top six and did well in the, the, the riding skills out, out to Spartanburg, but did not make the team. Okay. And two years later, came back, made the team. And then people began to ask me to do things, to go to Bolivia, to go to Colombia and other places and to uh, to uh, teach them how to ride, actually, to write stories and to teach. So I developed a mantra and it's a very similar, familiar one probably to you, but I ride to write and write to ride. So it's open doors for me. Oh, that's so cool. All right. So I hear all kinds of fun ingredients in there. Um, all the way back to the the early Norman days with grandpa, um, having a renter who's riding a kickstart Harley. That's, that's fun. I just love, yeah. love those details. I can't believe they used to kick those bikes over. Um, it sounds like you were every bit part of the up and coming scene, which eventually evolved into dirt biking as we know it, which was always, I mean, it, as anything develops and evolves over time it always starts from something else so uh the james dean of of old riding around on his you know triumph bonneville uh turned into a scrambler turned into something with a little more clearance and you were every bit part of that even on your honda 70 yeah that's uh so i mean you are grassroots you you were in on the front end there are times when i ask people or I'll make reference to Malcolm Smith and a lot of people are like no I don't know who that is and that's like people not knowing who Elvis Presley is yeah and then I don't I have people who say who is that <laughs> wait a minute I'm not that old I'm guilty. not that old guilty yeah, yeah. um you had a you had a fascinating article about a uh a holiday that you and your wife took in old uh country country English setting and you met an, uh, a cute old gentleman in a blue lab coat who was your, your boyhood hero. And I can't re recall the guy's name, but I had never heard of him. And I thought, I know nothing about this whole industry if I don't know this guy's name. Because it sounded, it sounded as though he was, a, he was a pillar. Sammy Miller. There it is. And I saw a YouTube reel or an uh, uh, Instagram reel this morning. Sammy Miller starting up an old uh, Honda race bike. This man is well into his 80s. He has won more than 1,400 trials competitions. Oh, one first place, more than 1,400 trials competitions, and still rebuilds, restores motorcycles, and maintains a museum. Mm. So, uh, yeah, cool guy. Yeah, I, I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who found passion, long-standing passion enough to enter 1,400 races or events, Yeah, let yeah. alone win. Go figure, go yeah. figure. Wow. Oh, he, he's the real deal. He's the, the British Malcolm Smith probably, but uh, yeah, he's quite a guy. Yeah, yeah. 
That's where actually that had me sign his gas pump, uh, which was was a tremendous honor. Mike McCabe, who's also another famous Charles writer, had been over there and, and had been friends with Sammy for years. And I don't want to go too far down this bunny trail, I know, but some of but, them are uh, fun. That's okay. We can get sure. it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, he, Mike had signed his gas pump. And after I spoke with Sammy a little bit and he he literally took me under his wing, I mean, put put his arm on my shoulder and walked me around and showed me his museum and explained some of his favorite bodies and all but then he took me over to the gas pump and he said this is mike mccabe and he says there's room right under his name would you please sign this gas oh pump? wow that's an honor. yeah oh, absolutely absolutely yeah, that's an honor that's that's next level stuff okay so from from those early days uh you transitioned more into uh more of in in following your tendency to find credentialing you entered into a big race, the GS race in Tunisia. Didn't make the squad at your first go. Came back around, represented the United States, and won. I presume. How did how did that work out? We got fifth. We took fifth. Okay. There were a total of thirteen countries. I believe there were ten teams. Uh, one team was made up of multiple countries. At least one team was made up of multiple countries. So we had a lot of folks represented. Okay. Uh, Canada, Canada nipped us out uh, of the fourth place position, but the UK and South Africa have consistently really, really done well. Germany has also done well in this uh, international uh, BMW GS trophy competition. The United States, what, one of the issues, and I'm not making excuses, this is a reality, but one of the issues for the United States in the GS trophy is the, the publicity in country of such an event. The uh, part of the points, a, a pretty significant section of the points that you score in the GS Trophy is for your social media presence. And they have a photo contest uh, multiple times throughout the event. And those photo points add up. And just so few, by comparison, uh, yeah. Americans follow the GS Trophy, care yeah. anything about it. So that's that's inhibiting. Uh, we typically present very good riders over there. But I'll tell you, there's some really, really outstanding riders in the winners. But the GS Trophy is about that camaraderie, that country-to-country uh, -country relationship where you meet people that you would never get to meet otherwise yeah. who have the same passion that you do for what we do as adventure riders. Wow. And it's a tremendous honor to just represent your country in that in that contest. Wow, yeah, no doubt. It's That's the Olympics of, of motorcycling, of mm -hmm. adventure motorcycling. That's so cool. I think um, the parallel there for me is soccer on the world's on the world's platform. Soccer is universally accepted, widely popular. It's huge here. It's a niche. The people who are in it are hugely loyal. They're mm -hmm. hugely invested, and it's part of their their identity. But it's not as popular as football proper. It's just right. it's not. Yeah. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just us. It, yeah. it is It is where our priorities lie. And right. uh, we, we have many very, very good priorities. So I'm very proud of our country and, and how we roll. And yeah. then there's some things that we're not so proud of. You know, it's people. Right. And I've been around the world enough to realize that that is true in every country that exists. Mm. Well, we'll hopefully talk about some of that um, further down, down the ride, um, so to speak. But I am looking forward to kind of kind of closing in toward your your adventure story so from the gs uh 
space and time. What year was that? Where uh, whereabouts in in what decade and and where? Oh, so the GS Trophy uh, uh-huh. when I competed in South Africa, Swaziland, and Mozambique, representing Team USA. That was in two thousand ten. Okay, so this was so. yeah okay within the last fifteen years. Um, yeah. All right, so that gave you the credential. That I think it, it sounds to me like you needed in order to start doing what you you are now doing, which is you offer individuals like myself and anybody else who's enthusiastic about learning how to maneuver big, possibly somewhat outfitted off-road bikes um, in a safe way through difficult terrain. And you you basically run an instruction camp called DART. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that and then bridge the gap and, and tell us uh, your, your adventure story starting from the very beginning. So give us give us the breakdown quick on DART, uh, what you do there, and then launch into, uh, into your adventure that you're going to share with us. Sure. So in 2010, um, I, I was beginning to be asked by a few different people um, about doing some training, some off-road training. And it did stem from the, the publicity from winning the, the uh, uh Adventure Rider Challenge in 2008, and then winning a place on Team USA in 2010. Okay. So uh, ultimately in 2017, I went to Germany, to Hecklingen Enduro Camp in Germany, and became internationally certified, as you alluded to in the uh, in the opening. This is comment. where you got your Motorrad certification. Where I got that Motorrad certification. So that's a quick bridging of that gap. Yeah, that's good. And Thank you. so in 2010, I began to write uh, a curriculum for a motorcycle training program for Skip Mascoro of Moto Discovery, used to be Pancho Villa Tours. And ultimately, I applied that in Bolivia and in Colombia and finally in the United States to start teaching off-road. I was already a flight instructor. I had done other forms of instruction, and I was always teaching something uh, when I was in the automobile business, uh, usually related to either human relations or into uh, uh, mechanical activities. But it was usually interpersonal between our people and the customers. Uh, Although I was a hands-on mechanic type guy, I leaned more towards those other elements of, of the interaction in the automotive business. So, uh, of course, the flight instruction, you know, was also a really good uh, precursor to to teaching off-road. Things happen a little slower in airplanes. So once I I went to to Colombia and Bolivia and then was asked to come back here and start teaching and began doing that, immediately it took off. Now, I think that there was a vacuum at that time in the the market in the United States for teaching. And also there was a, a sort of a lackluster acknowledgement of need from the perspective of those who might be student. People thought if they, they can ride the bike, they're okay. And I still get that once in a while, but less than I used to, because we've had so many experienced people come in and take our training courses and realize that, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea what I didn't know, you know, even in our fundamental level one and level two class. So began the teaching, uh, began to be invited on more and more tours and I coined a phrase called an immersion tour. I, this has been many, many years ago. And I thought I wanted to, to do immersion tours where we would take someone and teach them while en route to do what we do. And 
I began to partner with because I didn't really, once it later in life kind of came along, I didn't really want to um, be doing so much tour leading as I just wanted to teach. I just want to see that light come on for people. Hmm. So when people would ask me, hey, Bill, will you come and co-lead a tour with me? Then that was a tremendous opportunity. I didn't have to do the organization for the tour, which is tremendous work. It's hard work. And, you know, making all of those that, that, that diverse personalities happy on a tour is a big job. My hat's off to, uh, to tour leaders. So um, I, was, I was asked to do these, uh, these tours. And one of them was in uh, Colombia with uh, Micho, Mauricio Escobar. So the short, uh, he goes by Micho. Uh, Micho actually was a uh, marshal on this last uh, GS trophy competition that was just, just finished last week in Albania. So uh, I, I went there, I did this tour with him and began to do more and more of those, both in Bolivia and in Colombia. And uh, also I've worked with Dusty Wessels and others in Mexico and in, uh, in Baja, as well as all of the United States. So on one of these tours, uh, I was with, with Micho and we, you always have a, a wide range of skills uh, on the tour. But since it's an immersion tour that has a training element to it, it opens that um, range up, I guess, to, to a great degree of people who can come and can enjoy the tour. This yeah. concept was was started with me by Skip Muscore of Motor Discovery. So, so uh, Micho had this tour. I was there. We had done multiple ones before. And on this on the first day of the tour, during the training portion of it, there was a woman, and, and I'll tell her name. I don't think Cindy would mind. It was Cindy Kelso. Uh, she was a uh, retired, uh, I believe, deputy sheriff up in Northern California, along the okay. Lost, Lost Coast area. Uh, she said, Bill, I just have to tell you, I don't stand up. I've been to Rawhide. I've been to Jimmy Lewis's class. I don't stand up on my motorcycle. So, well, Cindy, let me tell you something about me. At the end of this tour, you'll be standing up on your motorcycle, or you're really gonna be frustrated, so am I, because there's so much value to it. And I went through all the reasons why and everything. Well, by the end of day one, she was sold on it. I did everything short of removing her seat, leaving her sitting on the battery, but uh, she got to where she would stand up and she was so proud and so happy. Oh, cool. So you got some early traction with her. Got some early traction and Cindy and I, I we don't communicate a lot, but I still consider her a good friend. Yeah. Well. In Colombia, you have a, a diverse terrain everywhere you go, and railroads don't really exist in Colombia in, anymore. There may be some small rail here or, there, here or there, but for the most part, they just don't. They're expensive to maintain in those mountains, the shifting earth and all. So there are a lot of railroad beds, and one in particular is a fascinating route through the jungle. And I went through there with, uh, with on this tour with Micho, and I think, believe I'd been through there maybe once before on this route, but uh, it's one of my favorite places to ride motorcycles. And it had gotten late in the day. We had had a number of events that occurred throughout the day. One, Cindy had dropped her bike in a river crossing and punched a hole in a valve cover, and we had to repair that. So that takes, you know, you, you burn an hour and a half really quickly. Uh, another fella uh, had a lot of camera equipment on this bike and he wanted to keep everything adjusted and batteries up and working. And, you know, it's his tour. He's a, a paying uh, 
person on this tour and we want to respect that. So we try to help everyone get what they want. And sure. Mitra is very good at planning his days out so that there is room and time for these things. So going through all this, we began to see the day grow long. And towards the latter part of the day, Rob uh, had a flat on the front of this F-800 GS. Hey, stop, stop just a quick second. I know you're you're tracking towards something. So it's you, Micho, and you've also got Cindy and Rob. How how many others are on this immersion tour? Oh, we had uh, several. We had Randy, uh, Randy Perkins, uh, who's become a very good friend. We had Sid, Dennis, uh, and Mark. Try to remember Mark's last name, but a good friend of Randy's. Uh, so there were quite a few. Okay, you there got were, a squad. Yeah, you got yeah. eight or ten riders. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, we've got a good sized group there. So it's okay. a tour. Okay, for a tour. Okay, cool. So, so I didn't mean to dis- distract no, you or detract. That's quite all right, and I and I hope I'm not being too detailed on this. Not uh, at all. This is this is great, but this helps kind of paint yeah. the picture for our listeners. Yeah. So and you know again varying degrees of skill on this ride. But we're making our way. And actually, my wife was riding, my wife Susan was riding in the chase truck, uh, which we had come along, which most good tour companies will have a chase vehicle. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not good if they don't. But most of the good ones do have for, for all the reasons you would have a chase vehicle. Sure. And fortunately for us, we had one. So we were making our way. Uh, Rob has a flat and we wind up stopping and taking uh, advantage of the opportunity to uh, uh demonstrate how to repair a flat okay well as luck would have it we get ready to roll and we're getting nervous it's getting late still had a you know hour and a half two hours to go to get to the town that we were heading towards and the bike the tube was pinched so we have another flat well now we're concerned and Mitchell said bill you've got to take these folks on the sun is already below the horizon Uh, we've, we've got to get out of this jungle before dark and so uh I said, well, okay, give me your GPS because I don't really know the route that well. So we zip tied the GPS on battery now to my uh, windscreen mount and off we went. Well, it's dark in a flash. There was, it was a moonless night and pitch dark and we're, we're making our way. Well, Cindy was at the back of the group and as I would stop, I would cross a bridge and I would stop. Now these bridges are old railroad bridges. So they've got the, the, the uh, steel girders and then okay. they would have railroad ties just laid across those bridges, butted up once, once in a, uh, one to another, but they were loose. They would rattle around when you go across. And yeah, then some of the bridges, maintained. well, barely, barely okay. just the local who came across and was missing a tie might just space them out a little more or maybe put another one down, but gotcha. But then there were the tall steel bridges and these bridges would have the rails that would have harvested uh, uh, multiples of the, the, the steel rails themselves, laid them longitudinally in tracks so crossing the bridge, the bad way for motorcyclists. So rather than bumping across ties, now right. you're running lengthwise down it's these slide on them. Very slippery, and they would yeah. have mud and dirt and sticks between. And maybe, as on some of them, and I did provide a couple of photos for you of these. There might be a plank in the middle. It was maybe a two by six. Yeah, we'll that, go ahead and post it. Sure, that you could ride along that, that center plank, and most people would skid their feet along the rails, riding with the tire on the center plank. And you know, I, I 
would just ride the plank. I would get on the plank, eyeball the far end, ride it like a rut and ride to the other end. And it's over with in a heartbeat. But the penalty for failure was pretty high if you messed that up. I had the confidence to do this and went on. Well, over time, this was a dusty night and uh, Cindy was at the back and I would see when all the riders would show up, here would come Cindy, proudly standing, doing great. And, but the dust was in her eyes. She's getting covered with it. I said, Cindy, I'll tell you what, ride up here with me and ride slightly in front of me and I will ride in your left echelon. You can move wherever you want, left or right on the trail, but uh, just you ride your ride. Don't worry about me. And she thought it was a great idea. We were combining our headlights and on we went. So by using both headlights, uh, actually Eric Hogan, the Wolfman of Wolfman Luggage, and I had begun doing this in, uh, in Bolivia at one point and at night along a river with a you know, 1500 foot drop on the side. And we were moving fast. So it was a really good plan to keep the other rider out of the dust. So Cindy and I are riding along like this, and we came to one of those tall girdered bridges, and I stopped immediately because it was clearly not a bridge I wanted to ride across on the moonless night without checking it out. Well, Cindy proudly stands up on her motorcycle and goes riding across the right lane of this bridge. And when I saw this happening, I, I thought, this is not a good idea. And by golly, she made it almost to the other side of the bridge, and the next thing I know, <clears throat> she had disappeared. I mean, her headlight had dropped down. All I could see is that little pink tail light, uh, very dim glow relative to the, to the night. And I jumped off my bike, got the side stand down as quickly as I could. I was running across there and I had, uh, I, I couldn't find her. She wasn't there. I didn't know how high the bridge was above whatever was below it. Oh man! There was a hole that her bike had dropped into and crushed the whole front end of the, of the motorcycle. It was a 1200 GS. And just beyond that was another hole. And I could only presume that Cindy had gone through that hole. Oh, my word. And so I'm thinking, well, we've lost one, like permanently. And yeah, I went that on across. Gut wrenching hole. Oh, in horrible, your, a horrible, your horrible yeah. feeling. Yeah. So I went Sick on to across, your stomach. Yeah. I went on across the bridge <clears throat> and I went down on the right side. There was a ledge. I had to go through a fence, uh, through this brush. And you're in Columbia in the jungle. You don't know what's in there. Right. And there was a ledge that dropped down several feet, maybe eight or 10 feet to the water. And I wasn't about to jump off of that into the water because <clears throat> I didn't know if I could even get back up. I could, I mean, I, my cell phone is my light. So I, I was hollering for Cindy and I would wait. And some of the other riders began to show up. And I heard this really neat voice, help, help, help me. Okay. And so I'm thinking, well, thank God she's alive. So I went back up to the top of the road and uh, a local had shown up from the other side on his motorcycle and witnessed a lot of what was going on. The rest of our riders had shown up, including Sid Dennis, who was, uh, I had switched him to ride Chase. He was the best of the, of the riders in our group that I could acknowledge. And so he and the local started down the other side before I did. And I was right behind them. The local jumped right into the water. And that was only about three feet down to the water over there. But the water reeked. It was a slow moving river instead of the fast moving rocky bottoms that we've been crossing, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it. Sure. This was uh, slow moving yeah, and muddy. And Cindy had, the local got a hold of her, brought her to shore. Her blonde hair was just matted. Her helmet had been filled with mud, which is why she couldn't communicate with us. 
Uh, she got that off. We got her drug up on the shore and she started screaming immediately. And I thought, well, she's got something badly hurt. Well, we had put her in an ant pile. So she's been to the ants. We got her up. We drug her the rest of the way up the embankment to the road. By now, Susan and the, the chase driver had shown up. We washed her off as much as we could with water. She was pretty badly bruised from stem to stern, uh, all the front of her body from going through this bridge and hitting the tree limbs on the way down and all. But she was alive and she didn't appear to have anything broken. Wow. So, but she had ingested some of the mud and the water and she uh, she was thanking Climb for her gear. And uh, they were, uh, and it was good gear and she was well protected. But we, we got her into the truck. It took six men to get this motorcycle levered up out of that bridge and and put we stowed it behind uh, that local young man's house there and i believe i might have a picture of he and a buddy of his as well you did yeah. we'll show that as well yeah so it was just it wasn't the best picture the light was horrible and all but hey that's what you got yeah and um but such kind people such wonderful people but uh Cindy ended up at the hospital. She had some digestive or some, some issues uh, from the, the, the mud and the water. She got yeah. over that and is fine now. Wow. Uh, she wrote a tremendous story for Clive that hangs on their wall inside of their corporate offices in Idaho now, too. So if you ever go to Clive, ask to see Cindy's story. Is that right? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So Cindy's dangerous with a pen, too. Yeah. But for me, I had to really question where was the error? You know, we do uh, recaps on all of our training sessions with DART. Uh, our instructors will stop. We'll have a powwow at the end. The students are dissipating or gone entirely. And we talk about what went well and what didn't and how we could uh, have made it better. Sometimes there's an injury. How could we have prevented that injury or at least minimized it? And it's easy to say, well, stuff happens, you know, it's just, so you just got to deal with it. It's adventure writing. That's why people sign waivers and all that. We don't go there. That's not how we look at it. Because if it happened on our watch, we feel a degree of responsibility. And that is, can we prevent it the next time? Maybe we couldn't have reasonably anticipated it before, but now with the experience that we have acquired, could we have prevented this for the future? Or could we prevent it for the future? And so that was kind of what Micho and I did. And uh, Susan was involved in that discussion and all. And the, the point of that was really, for me, lead from the front. I mean, I was willing to stay with Micho or with uh, Rob to fix that flat tire. But Micho felt responsible. He was at the very end. He knew that he would come up on the group if he was coming from the back. I felt like Cindy's ability to see was more important than her following me in that dust. Now I learned later, she also only has vision in one eye. So oh, wow. it, would that have made a difference? It might've made me even feel more like she needed to be in the front. Don't know. But looking at it in retrospect, I realized that it's really very difficult to lead from the back. To lead, you must be in the front. You must be setting the pace. You must be setting the course making the decisions of when to stop for rest or whatever else that might be. And once you relinquish that control of leading from the front, then you open yourself up to a number of possibilities that you can't control. You can't control everything even from the front, granted, but at least you're the leader if you're leading from the front. 
Yeah. Wow. There's so much good stuff in there. Um, just from uh, hearing from your method of, of um, breaking down each trip. I love that setting up each trip on the front end. I love the fact that you guys are, are bringing a sag wagon or a, a reinforcement vehicle. Um, sag wagons probably, probably the wrong term, but you know what I mean? It's exactly what it is. It's just like in a bicycle. It's yeah. term is used most frequently in bicycling. And yeah. It, if it, somebody's it, hurting or somebody's tired or somebody <clears throat> needs assistance, you've got another backup plan. You can throw them in the back of the car. You can throw a bike on a trailer if somebody needs, you know, more than a pinch flat or a, or a valve. Yeah. You've got, you've got a backup. I love that. I love the fact that you and Micho, um, are doing breakdowns, your debriefing. Um, I think that just expresses humility. I think a lot of what you said resonates a lot with me. Um, and some of the roles that I've had, I was, I was with a men's ministry team that, uh, after every major event, we would do our four buckets. And it sounds a lot like what you and Micho were doing. We call it the four bucket. You guys probably call it something else, but it's what went right, what went wrong, what was missing, and what was confusing, right? And and there's a lot of opportunities for you as a leader in that environment to go, that went wrong, and that that's on me. Um, but my hats off to you just for leading that way. I think that's uh, I think that expresses humility that you're willing, even at your age, with your background and with your credentials, to say you know what? I should have been in front of Cindy and that's on me. Um, yeah, that expresses the type of humility I think that a lot of us are looking for in a leader. So my, I, I hope you hear me um, saying I, I admire that about you. No, thank you. Thank yeah. You. Um, now, as far as Cindy not having vision in both eyes, what did you and Micho come to with that, with, with you, Susan, and Micho doing a debrief with that? Did that fall into maybe maybe some adjustments on intake well so that's uh, vetting is uh, always a, an issue and a concern for any tour company uh, vetting for training not so much because everybody is there to get better on a tour there is a certain standard that is expected to be met for riding skill but when it's an immersion tour with training involved in it then there is an expectation that that skill will evolve and improve as you go along. There was nothing wrong with that tour in my judgment still today, as far as the, the class of riders that we had, it was a series of events that went wrong to put us there after dark. And there are very few options. It is adventure and adventure is what happens when plans go awry. So it's how you handle it that, that makes the difference. So I think that we, we did, about the best that we could under the circumstances. Um, it would not have happened had I been in the front. I was delegated that position. But whether Cindy should have been there or not, because she only had vision in one eye, absolutely. That That is up to her. We're all adults here. Yeah. Uh, now, I mean, what if someone showed up with one arm and they were uh, able to, uh, to ride a motorcycle and demonstrated they could ride it fairly well? Now, if we knew something, that was going to put them in peril because they absolutely had to have both arms. <clears throat> There's room for a discussion there. Sure. And I'm not worried about the litigious aspect of that, of discrimination against someone who is um, uh, impaired in some way. That's not the point. It's a matter of how can we include them? Not why should we exclude them? Right. 
Yeah. So no, I think Cindy had demonstrated her ability. She'd ridden Baja just a few weeks before. So she demonstrated her ability to ride well enough there. Uh, she just couldn't see. She didn't see what I saw whenever she started across that bridge, either through lack of experience or lack of vision or combination thereof. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, uh, she was, she was where she needed to be. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. That, that's good. That's a good reminder as well. And I hope I wasn't steering the wrong, uh, the wrong idea with my comment on vetting or on, intake i think no it's a fair question actually. it is and i think even in in my mind i'm going okay well what is it drew that you love about adventure well it, it goes back to that earlier comment it's for everyone and it is inclusive and one of my you know one of my my adventure idols sydney smith doesn't have lower legs lost them both there you go the dude's an animal mm -hmm. and he's an adaptive genius he's got it figured out i don't need to worry about that he knows how to get out of a lake without his legs and belly crawl to the transition station and put his legs back on so he can jump on a bike. The dude does Ironmans. Yeah. I, that, yeah. I don't need to worry about Sid. Skill trumps it. If I'm leading a trip, I need to make sure that place falls in line with what I know about my crew. Right. Right. Yeah. And the, the upcoming uh, adventure. My yeah. wife leads uh, a number of outdoor events, uh, usually hiking, backpacking, and usually in rough country. She's uh, uh, doing a rim to rim next month, and she's already done two uh, bottom and back hikes. That's in so Canyon cool. You year. shared that with me. I love that. But she does this uh, locally also here in Oklahoma and in Arkansas. And at times, uh, early on, she's gotten better about vetting people. But people have overestimated uh, their abilities, and they've gotten out on these these hikes with her, and she's come back with her shoulders literally bleeding from carrying all their her stuff. gear and their gear, so they could simply get back to the trailhead. And when that happens, you know, she she realizes, okay, this is this stuff is real, and we need to vet these people, and they need to demonstrate a certain degree of ability or capability before they go on this hike with me and with this group, because mm -hmm. there is a responsibility to say, hey, you don't understand how hard it's really going to get, yeah. and if you can't perform at this level, you can't be there and try to perform at that level, which is much higher. Yeah, there's a delicate dance between trying to encourage somebody to push that envelope and explore what it means to go beyond what you ever thought was possible, but then also holding holding true to the reality of the situation and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to put somebody, you have to measure the risk. You have to say, all right, I'm not going to put somebody in danger of life or limb unnecessarily. We're all accepting you know, the the risk that is inherent with the activity that we're doing. Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to put somebody in extra risk just because of the fact that I want them to, to push the boundaries. You know what I mean? You got to, yeah. that's a delicate dance to play. Yeah, it can, it can be. All right. Wow. That's fascinating. That's an awesome story. I'm so glad Cindy's okay. I think it's so cool to hear that um, she responded in such a, a way where it was like, yeah, I'm going to write the, the name of the company of the gear that I had on my person that I felt protected me. I'm assuming she's still, she just strikes, just from the, the details of the story, it strikes me Cindy's the type of gal who gets back on a motorcycle after this. Is oh, right? without, without question, without question. You know, Cindy it. is exemplary of attitude. And, you know, we profess that there are four cornerstones to safe and effective adventure riding. Yeah. The four cornerstones that will get you home at the end of an adventure. And they are balance, control, 
judgment, and attitude. Attitude being the most important of the four. So anytime one or more fail you, one or more of the others should still get you home. But the one that'll get you home most is attitude. That's that's good enough to repeat. Go through those again for us, Bill, if you would. Balance, control. Judgment and attitude. That's great. So two are of the of the uh, two are more kinesthetic, balance and control. Balance our ability to stand there or to ride a bicycle or a motorcycle. Control for us as adventure riders is the ability to use the controls on the motorcycle to maintain our weight for it. Balance. Balance. Yeah. So clutch brake throttle, body position, various weight on, on uh, foot pegs, uh, all of these things staying within the cone of balance with our bodies on the bike. So balance yeah. and control are kinesthetic. Judgment and attitude are a lot more of the mind and the heart. So should I go? Should I stay home? Should I ride with this group that I've heard has this reputation or this particular individual? Or maybe I've been trained to do some of these things and it's time for me to step out of my comfort zone and push it just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So judgment. And then attitude, that's that that uh, mechanism within us that says, you know, I, I, I've hurt myself. I'm really getting angry. I'm not performing like I should. And we start kicking at the goats, so to speak. And maybe the attitude can be demonstrated by a fellow rider whenever we are there kicking at the goads and we've dented the tank on our $25,000 plus motorcycle now and we've broken our wrist and we're 75 miles from the nearest paved road or dirt road maybe even and a buddy comes up and puts a hand on the shoulder and says hey I know this stinks I know it feels really bad to you right now but we're going to get you out of here and just think of the stories you're going to have to tell whenever you get home Mm. and that can be a lift that can bring us up in spirit and in energy that it fills us with some of their energy and in some significant ways so that we can do something maybe a little bit beyond what we would have been able to do had we continued down that spiral. Yeah. Oh man. Can you imagine, can you imagine how we would grow as a society like wildfire if we had that type of mindset injected into corporate America? If our leaders in the corporate world would come up alongside us, put their arm on our shoulder and say, hey, I know this sucks. I know my review had a few lackluster areas. I know there was some room for market improvement. We're going to get out of this and we're going to be better for it. And we are going to do it together. Man, that would change so much. But as it were, it's, it's like, man, I got to get mine. I'm looking out for me. I'm looking out for me. And if you're going to drag me down, I got to cut you loose. There was a young man who worked for a uh, life insurance company uh, or major insurance company. And he was he'd come up through the ranks and made some uh, significant advancements in his, his position there with the company. He was put okay. in charge of a $10 million deal. Okay. And he blew the deal. He blew it. Lost the client. Shoot. It was called to the corner office up at the top of the building and the CEO of the company had him come in. He sat down he said, well, what happened? And the guy explained to best that he could what happened. He said, well, what do you think you could have done better? And he explained what he thought he could have done better. He says, I'll buy that. He said, get back to work. Oh, I love that. And he said, wait a minute, get back to work. You didn't call me up here to fire me. And he said, fire you. I've just invested $10 million in your education. Get back to work. I don't want yes. somebody else to benefit from it. <laughs> yes. We need more of that. We need wisdom in leadership. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I also had a young man leave a nut loose on the steering wheel of a Jeep one time. <clears throat> he got fired. Yeah, there's yeah, there's some there's, mistakes you just can't make. <laughs> there's always going to be that. Yep. All right. Well, that's good and, stuff, Bill. If there were uh, if there were one sentence where you could say, "All right, I've taken this this situation with Cindy in my group with uh, with uh, what's his name, Micho, Micho, Micho." Okay, uh-huh. Micho. Um, where you said, "All right, lead from the front." Where has that manifest in your life after the fact? Have you found that to be true in situations after the fact? in uh, the, the various areas of life that you lead? It has. Um, you know, just in dark training alone, we tend as instructors, especially in the early um, time of our, of our teaching, to really start to push whenever a student is struggling. Now, this could be our children as well. And certainly in the early days of, of parenthood, I pushed more than I led in, in many areas of, of uh, their growing up. But I'll just keep it narrow within within the ranks of our students. If we're saying, I want you to, or you have to, or you need to, we need to come off of that a little bit. And have you considered, or maybe I can demonstrate this for you again and see if this is something that you could try. Or something a little, uh, it's not just softer, but it's encouraging words rather than words that wind them up tighter. So leading from the front is doing good demonstrations in life, whether that be for riding a motorcycle or for how you run your family or for how you maintain health and fitness, whatever that might be. Uh, Yeah, lead from the front, set the example, do these things in ways that make people admire what you do and they want to, to mimic those things and then provide a facility that can can help them do that uh, through curriculum, through whatever it takes, but help them achieve their goals. That's some sensational advice, man. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to to be able to sit here and have this discussion. Yeah, some some of the the most profound nuggets of wisdom come out of fun conversation. I, I liken this to a campfire. This is yeah. me. This is a blast. So um, I've spent you know. A lot of interactive one-on-one time with people through computers lately, and it's it doesn't sound very ideal, um, and it's not idyllic. But I have also found that when you work with what you got, thanks COVID, um, man, there's some silver linings, and this is one of them. This is cool. So. Technology facilitates uh, the, the sparking and growth of relationships if we utilize it in that way. You know, it can certainly be a negative thing, but just like like anything that we have, food, anything else that we have, it could be a good thing. It could be a bad. That's it. You mentioned the campfire. Uh, I will, if I may, mention dark camp. You had brought used that term earlier. Yeah, dark, I'd like that. Yeah, dark camp is our Christian Adventure Motorcycle Project. We are now under a parent organization, RPM, Rugged Peak Ministries, that we have created. Our friend Vernon Bryant, who is a uh, preacher in um, in San Antonio, Texas, uh, is working with Susan and I and, and some other very good friends who have become the board members for this project. But it's just a, a, a way, a reason, a place to go out and ride motorcycles, experiencing the uh, uh, the day through 
and, and, and utilizing balance, control, judgment, and attitude. And at the end of the day, coming back and talking about how those four cornerstones apply to our spiritual walk in life. So we talk about how we lost our balance on the trail and maybe how we lost our balance somewhere else in life. Oh and man, each, I'm getting each evening. It's one of those, one of those four elements. So uh, yeah, dark camp is kind of a fun thing that we begin to expand to with, uh, with our, our school. Uh, I can't wait to learn more about it. Do you have a website that you can send us to? So buildragoo.com is my primary website. Rugged Peak Ministries, the website is evolving right now. I don't know how developed it is. But, uh, you know, someone can reach out to me at, uh, uh, through buildragoo.com. My email address is on there. It's dragooadventuresllc at gmail.com. Okay. That's my name, dragooadventures, plural, LLC at gmail.com. And I'd uh, be happy to answer questions about that as well. Got it. Buildragoo.com, B-I-L-L-D-R-A-G-O-O.com. Um, or the email that Bill just provided and Rugged Peak is still under construction. It sounds like. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Well, do you have, uh, do you have two minutes for some, some rapid fire stuff? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, talk to me about the GS specifically. Why is that your bike? I know you're a, a BMW endorsed instructor. So there's, there's gotta be, uh, I gotta play this carefully, but, um, what draws you to that bike as opposed to say the model that I'm riding, which is, uh, I have a 2014, uh, super T it's a, it's an S 10, 1200. Um, I got it on a, uh, I got it under unique circumstances. I had a, I have a neighbor who's in his sixties. I said, Hey, you know, keep your eye out. I'm starting to look for an adventure motorcycle. He said, you are. I said, yeah. He said, my college roommate just told me he's sick and tired of the heavy bike that he bought. It's a 2014. It's got 12,000 miles on it. You might want to take a look. And I looked at it. The thing's all farkled out. It's beautiful. It's mint. He wanted eight grand for it. I'm going, Oh my gosh. You okay. can't not buy that bike. <laughs> yeah. And it's a shaft. I mean, it's a shaft driven. It's got Shinko 705s on it. It's got side bags, um, a really stout skid plate. I don't know who makes it. Um, but, uh, crash bars, fog lamps, the works, the things dialed. So I'm excited about it and I've been riding it. I put probably 1200 miles on it since March, but, um, and that might not amazing machine, but you can't turn off the ABS. Okay. All right. So (laughs) back to you. Why, uh, why the GS over say something like a, a Yamaha super Tenari? Well, one correction or clarification is that I am not endorsed by BMW. Oh. Uh, I don't know if I'm even acknowledged by BMW Motorrad here in the United States. Um, I am acknowledged internationally as an instructor. I have the document to prove that. Okay, okay. So I I did that. Now, uh, BMW Motorrad USA did endorse me at the time that I went for my certification in 2017. Basically, what they saw was this guy would probably make a good instructor and we could use some more instructors here in the United States. So they basically said I could go and they did not pay for anything. They didn't do anything for me elsewise. Um, they have, they do not give me a motorcycle to ride. Uh, my dealer sometimes helps me uh, on, on parts purchases and historically has given me a bit of a break on the bikes themselves. 
Okay. But BMW does not currently truly endorse. So you can ride whatever bike you want. I can ride any bike I want. And we teach and we advocate all, all brands. Well, better yet. Why do you choose the GS? Cause I know that so, that's, that's the case. I spent uh, part of the spring in Portugal for Triumph, uh, riding their new Triumph uh, Tiger 1200. Okay. Uh, all, all the different models, I rode them all. I wrote multiple stories about them. In fact, in a recent issue of ADB Moto Magazine, also in a, uh, in Overland Journal Magazine, and a couple of online presences, those exist. So uh, I've got some experience on some other bikes. I just did a ride on a Tenere 700, which is a fabulous machine. And by the way, your Tenere is also a fabulous machine. It has a lot of uh, a tremendous components and characteristics. It's the one bike that a guy rode 25,000 miles from pole to pole and back uh, didn't have any failures, didn't even have to adjust the valves. Is that right? Oh, yeah. But when you get a motorcycle, uh, you want it to do all the things you want it to do to the best of the ability of a single machine to do that. For me, the BMW does that. My 1250 is just right over here. Sorry, they don't have the camera turned around towards it, but it looks just like a 1250 GS. Can you send us a photo? I'd like to I'd like to show off your baby. Sure, sure. All right. So, um, but... Uh, I love the motor on the GS. Uh, You know, this this bike started in 1980 and has evolved ever since for a single purpose, and that is to be the world's best, now what we call adventure bike. Uh, It is big. It is heavy. You accept that. A John Deere tractor is big and heavy, but if you're going to pull a plow, that's what you want. Well, we can plow through things with this motorcycle that a lot of bikes don't. The center of mass is carried very low in the bike. So the way that it rides, uh, I like the ergonomics of the motorcycle. Uh, It's easy to turn in. It does extremely well in tight technical off-road terrain that is is acceptable for a big adventure bike. You're not going to do trials on this bike in the most literal sense, but you can do some pretty trials-like things, what we call rolling trials on this bike very, very well because it maintains its traction, has a 59-inch wheelbase. A lot of its peers have 60, 61, 62, or longer-inch wheelbase. Harley-Davidson Pan America, for example, is at least two, two and a half inches longer. You feel that when you're trying to turn, when you're trying to get through, whether it's a switchback on Black Bear Pass in Colorado or uh, a GS Giants or other uh, competition that's out there for adventure riders. So that ability to roll through these things uh, really, really tight helps. The motor does not stall at low speeds like Mm. a lot of these other bikes do. A lot of the other bikes do. Uh, The Triumph Triple has improved significantly, but I could go way down all of these roads with the the other bikes, but the BMW does not have that issue. The new shift cam motor, the uh, development of power from idle right on up to redline. Yeah, it's not 148 horsepower, it's 136. How much do you need? How much do you need? You know, people say uh, that say my bike is slow, and I don't know. It's not. It's the fast, like it's the fastest thing I've got in my garage, and yeah. it puts a smile on my face. So exactly. it's like a really fast tractor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a really fast <laughs> tractor. That's what the BMW is. It's like a really fast, capable tractor. I love the way it looks. I like the way it yeah. sounds. Uh, I do too. I, I like the GS a lot. Yeah, it's well supported by the aftermarket. So there's just a, yeah, we have an excellent dealer at Eurotech in Oklahoma City too, which is, uh, we're, we're very fortunate to have that. And I say all that without ever having put my leg over one. Sincerely, my my intro to adventure riding was March of this year. So I just found another neighbor 
this is ir- ironic, but it's been pretty cool. I've developed a really cool relationship with uh, another neighbor that we've just not really had a, a mutual connection, but now we have a point of contact because I saw that dude roll in standing up and I was like, son of a gun, he bought an adventure bike. I ran over there, knocked on the door. He had a Tiger 800 and um, it wasn't even two weeks later that he said, all right, I'm going to get a big one. And he he went and got the Tiger 12 and we've been putting on miles together. It's been a lot of fun. So we just, just not too long ago, we went up to check out, Michigan has uh, some sequoia trees. Never knew that, but we just got to go stare at some 200 foot redwoods that somehow managed to thrive in the, uh, in the environment that's somewhat similar to Northern California. And, uh, then we just went to do some, uh, loop in a place called hell, Michigan. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a little known track that, um, I bet it's 20 miles where you've got a good, uh, a good amount of twisties and, you know, it's not the dragon, but it's an hour away. So. Did you stop for a burger at the hell bar and grill? We did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I did a, story on the, did a story on the Pan America for uh, uh, Roadrunner magazine uh, just, just last year. And uh, I, I actually found myself in a park and I was interviewing a couple of women there in the park. They had a bunch of kids and they just were a great photo op. And they said, hey, you need to go to hell. And I said, I'm not sure I'm taking this right. It's just, no, it's right up the road. And just, you've got to go there since you're this close. So I actually spent uh, a, a short amount of time in hell. It was a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Imagine that. That's crazy. Yeah, I was just there last week with, with my new friend. So That's great. Yeah, that's, great. that's fun. All right. Uh, Wolfman luggage. Is that your preferred uh, baggage setup? Eric is a good friend. We traveled in Bolivia together. There was a story that uh, was in Roadrunner. Roadrunner? No, it was in uh, it was in Overland Journal magazine called Wolfman in the Land of Butch and Sundance, and he makes a tremendous product. I currently use Moscomoto. Uh, Pete okay. Day and Ash um, and I have become friends over the years, and I like the ergonomics of their product. Um, it is a little bit more expensive. I think it's a very high quality product. And I like it. So uh, it, it's pick your poison, you know, but I do currently use Moscomoto versus the uh, versus uh, any of the others that are out there right now. Sure. Well, there's a reason I'm asking you. You're an accelerator. Um, I'm on the front end. You've experienced probably all the brands and all of the the nooks and crannies, the ins and outs, the, the positives and negatives of, of a lot of the stuff that I haven't even seen. So um, you can get me there quicker. And I like that. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't want to profess that any particular brand is the best for everyone, because right. if that were the case, there would only probably be one brand. Yeah. But it's uh, you, you look at what works for you and those particular features that work. Yep. And you also look at the support of the organization. And I think that that combination is uh, is very important. And uh, I think that Pete and Ash, uh, the, their team, they do a great job. So. Uh, that's that's how I roll right now. I like it that I can flip it off of there in a second if I'm slow. Yeah, snap and it's off. Yeah, and it's secure when it's on there with their newest latching mechanism. So it's yeah, good stuff. okay. Uh, last gear related, and then I just got a fun one. So climb. Why? What's their? Why have they enjoyed such a good rep? You, you, uh, you've mentioned them a couple of times. I've heard them from neighbors and from every forum that I've jumped on. 
And then uh, JJ Lewis recommended that I, I go with um, a climb product for my pants for sure if I couldn't mm-hmm. afford anything else. And I couldn't, so I did buy a pair of climb pants, and those suckers feel like they're bulletproof. Um, they've got D30 armor in them. They are warm. They're Gore-Tex, zippered, welded seams. It's a lot of cool stuff, but I'm also going, okay, is there how many other players are there in this market? Um, I heard you mention them, so I'm, I'm going to assume that you use their stuff? I do. Okay. What's their, what's their sauce? What, what's their, what's their so story? I've, I've been using Climb Gear since about 2009 or 10 when they were actually just before they partnered with Gore-Tex. Okay. And they're, of course, uh, a snowmobile gear company first and foremost. That's what they were, whatever they began to evolve on into the motorcycling. Uh, I don't know if that's bigger now or not. I I don't profess to have that knowledge. But uh, I was out at um, at Gore uh, Manufacturing and Testing Facility in Newark, Delaware, a couple of years ago on assignment uh, for a magazine to see how Gore-Tex partnered with these other companies. I wrote a story for Overland Journal magazine that described that visit. But what I learned during that visit, besides the fact I just liked the gear coming up on that, you know, I like the fit, I like the look, uh, I like the people. I've known people who have worked there. I, I still know some people who work there. Uh, even since Polaris has bought them out, um, they've just continued to get bigger and better as far as I can tell. But their partnership with Gore is uh, something that not every manufacturer can do. There are lesser brands, there are other similar brands of the uh, um, expanded, uh, what was it, E? Oh goodness, now I, I lost it. I didn't think I'd ever lose that. But the, the expanded product that they have developed to, um, to make the, the Gore-Tex lining. There are over 300 of these types of material that they use in various products through the space program and through everything else. Well, Gore-Tex, has extremely high standards for anyone to use their product in their garment. And we went through for two days, we went through their testing labs, seeing test after test after test after test. Climb passed all of their tests first time through in 2010 and has just gotten better. Now, some people say, well, it's really expensive. Well, you know what? It costs a lot of money to have that kind of uh, heritage or lineage in your products. Also, Climb has a um, lifetime guarantee. Excuse me, I don't think it's lifetime. I believe it's for five years from the time you buy the product that if you have a crash and you have to provide a police report for it, but they will replace the garment if it's damaged in the crash. Now, some people say, well, why do you have to have a police report? I crashed off road. Well, I mean, there's still a business like anywhere else, but they're also looking for data. They want to know exactly what happened. How fast was this person going? Were they by themselves or whether it was an automobile or something else involved so that they can use that data to improve the product for us? Who else does that? I'm not complaining about it. Yeah, no. And I saw the row of garments up there with crash reports on them, the holes in the garments, you know. It, there was a lot of information there that they use. So they, they are able to harvest that when they get the stuff back, but it's, it, is it the best? And is it the only, no, I mean, there are some other really good brands out there. Again, you have to pick your poison. We don't want everybody to look the same when they're out right. there riding their motorcycle. Right. But if you just want to cut to the chase, get good gear, then you buy climb. You did that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you got to, in a free market Western civilization, you got a lot of choices and there's beauty in that. But, um, I also want to, you know, I want to get the right stuff. I'm a dad, I'm a husband. I don't want to, I don't want to have to have skin grafts if I don't need to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it it does help. I mean, you, you've, you've got some of the gear now, but you can look at that technology, even the, the, uh, um, what are the beads, uh, (laughs) <laughs> words are escaping me right now, but they, they just use some great technology and all their skin protection points as well. Not just the D30 armor, but other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that ceramic got, is the, <laughs> that's that nebulous word. I was Well, and just their, yeah, their textile is like incredibly, you feel it. As soon as you take it out of the package, you go, Oh, this is good. This is high quality. You can feel yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So something fun, uh, Bill, you strike me as, and this is our, our last question. So, um, Bill, you strike me as somebody who's in, entirely capable. You have been, um, in so many fun, fascinating places. I hear you mentioned Bolivia. I hear you mentioned, um, Colombia. I hear you talking about getting certified in Germany. You've got, uh, Eagle Scout on your, on your list of credentials, scuba, uh, instructor, flight instructor, you've done some pretty cool stuff. Um, is there anything left on your bucket list? You're, uh, you're on, you're on that season in life where I'm going, all right, you've got wisdom to give to the young, the young bucks now. Um, is there stuff that's still not crossed off your list? I'm enjoying life as it comes to me, but there are some things that, that I specifically want to do. And a lot of them involve my wife, Susan, Hmm. Uh, you know, we've, alluded to some of her um, adventures and all. And I want to travel more with her. We've traveled a lot together. You know, one of our more paramount trips was uh, Mount Everest base camp, not the top, but the base camp. And that was a tremendous time together. There was a lot of hardship, a lot of discomfort. Um, You know, you don't put yourself in hardship and discomfort necessarily so that you will be injured or made miserable, but you do do it so that you can experience the essence of, of what there is out there. We're building an old Land Cruiser, an old FJ-40 Land Cruiser right now. And we took the body off and the frame has been sandblasted and powder coated and underneath, but I'm not doing anything to the exterior of this truck, putting in air conditioning and power steering, and you know, to make it a little bit more ergonomic. Uh, but it's, uh, I want to travel in that old truck. We've got a really nice forerunner that we like to travel in. Uh, we've done a lot of research for her stories and a book that she's writing on the Butterfield Overland Mail Route on motorcycles. She has uh, right behind me, you can barely see the front end of a little uh, CT90 Honda. She is going to be using that to retrace some of the Butterfield Mail Route for her book. She's writing about a lot of her experiences as well as historical facts about the Butterfield. So these experiences with my wife, who is absolutely the love of my life, uh, these are things that I really want to do while I still have the health and fitness, the uh, flexibility and all to go out and do. So wherever that leads us, uh, the training, I, I love to teach. DART has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. And the fact that two of my sons are now involved with me in DART uh, is also a, a tremendous blessing. And I like to see young people seek and acquire or achieve their dreams. Seeing my middle son, Ben, in particular, coming as far as he has in DART, uh, Jake, the older son, works uh, more at a job that's more demanding of him. He works at Harley, Harley Davidson World in Oklahoma City, doesn't get as much time off, but both of them are tremendous instructors 
They're extremely talented writers. So seeing that and then seeing that evolution that I have hopefully taught some to them and they are now teaching to others to see that happening. Uh, I want to continue with that joy as long as I can. Mm. Mm. That's pretty cool. Sounds like uh, family is tremendously important to you with Susan and Ben and Jake. Um, yeah. Man. Well, we wish you the best in, uh, in achieving that. And uh, it sounds like you're well on your way. Bill, thanks so much for your time. Again, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you on the trail. Likewise, Drew. It was a pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me on the show.